Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family today. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there's room for you here. This is a safe place for you to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. The round reminds us that our spiritual growth is not just for our own benefit. We're all here to receive something this morning, but we also all have something to give. So as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love, we can also spread God's love to one more person. Well, if I'm good at anything in this world, um, it is sleeping. I love sleeping. I'm good at it. From a young age, I showed great promise uh, in it and sleeping. I almost got a scholarship to Davidson for, for sleeping. But there was one night of the year that I found sleeping to be difficult, and that is the night before Christmas. When you go to sleep on December the 24th, that tree looks so alone, so isolated. But I knew that when I woke up on the 25th, there would be presents surrounding that tree, and we would celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ by ripping wrapping paper to shreds. And on the night in between, it was just hard to sleep. There was this excitement, this anticipation of what was going to be there, those presents under the tree. Even before I had seen the presents under the tree, I was excited about them. I somehow knew deep in my heart that they were there, and I ran down that hall. Well, today we want to start a four-week series of sermons uh, preparing us for Christmas in Advent. Advent is the four weeks before Christmas. And this series, we want to answer this question. The question is, what do you really want for Christmas? What do you really want for Christmas? Like the stuff you can't put on a credit card. The the things you want to be true when all the twinkling lights go back into the, the attic. What do you really want for Christmas? Over the centuries, uh, Christians have actually answered this question uh, and, and highlighted four major longings that Jesus Christ came to satisfy. You may be able to think of any number of longings that you or I have, but Christians throughout the centuries have highlighted four specific longings that Jesus Christ came to satisfy. When Jesus was born on that first Christmas in Bethlehem and placed in the manger, he came at least to do this, to satisfy four major longings. And over the years, we integrated those four longings into something called an Advent wreath. Advent refers to, again, the four weeks before Christmas. So in an Advent wreath, you will find five candles. We are not allowed to have open flames in this gym or in the the building next door where we do the 815 service. So this picture is going to have to suffice for our Advent wreath. (laughs) The purple ones symbolize hope, peace, and love. The pink one symbolizes joy. And then in the middle, the white candle symbolizes Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is at the center. Hopefully that would sound would sound familiar if you've ever been here before. So this week we want to look at hope, hope, and so we light the hope candle. That's all we got. That's all we could afford this year. Yeah, it's pretty high tech. Now, you may or may not have grown up in a family with an Advent wreath, or you may have never, you know, you may have seen them around or whatever. We can lose sight of the deep meaning that underlines this piece of greenery. The, the meaning, the symbolism, is that Jesus Christ is central to the fulfillment of these four human longings, hope, 
peace, joy, and love. Jesus Christ is central to the fulfillment of these four deep human longings, peace, joy, love, and hope. Hope is where we start today. The old preachers used to say that you and I can live for weeks without food, days without water, minutes without air, but we cannot live for one second without hope. Jesus Christ is called by the Bible the light of the world, but if Jesus is the light of the world, what's also being affirmed there? That there is darkness in the world, that darkness is real, that darkness is part of our lives. There's not some platinum elite status of being a Christian where you get to avoid suffering and pain and the darkness of life. These things are real, but they are not ultimate. Earlier we heard our Advent passage for the morning, Luke chapter 21, verses 25 to 34. Now I will just admit, this is an odd passage for getting ready for Christmas. Most Advent passages are about little baby Jesus, and who doesn't love cooing at a little baby, much less little baby Jesus? But the Advent passage for today is from the end of Jesus' ministry, and he's teaching about how he will return at the end of the world. Now, when you get to end-of-the-world passages in the Bible, often you take one of two approaches. Some people want to avoid them entirely, and other people become overly obsessed with them. Might I suggest neither of those is a very helpful way to do this, that instead we're going to try to do a third one, which is we're going to see what it says and learn from it. (laughs) And specifically, we're going to see what it says and learn from it on the subject of hope, hope. So we begin, Jesus is teaching this. Jesus teaches in chapter 25, Luke, verse, Luke chapter 21, verse 25, Jesus begins his teaching by saying, There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now, there's debate about whether or not Jesus' language here is literal or symbolic. For example, when Jesus says that people will be in anguish because of the roaring of the sea, is he talking about the literal ocean or is he being symbolic? Because throughout the Bible, the sea became a major symbol of everything that opposed God. The people, the systems, the structures, and the demonic forces that oppose God. So, so when Jesus says people and nations will be horrified by the raging sea, is he referring to natural disasters, or is he referring to the way that everything that opposes God seems to have the upper hand in our world? Maybe he's doing both. There's a lot of debate about this, but, but the takeaway from either one, whatever perspective you would take, is the same. The impression is clear that the world around us is crumbling, that darkness is closing in. And so when that's happening, Jesus says to do this, verse 27, at that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So what does Jesus say to do? He says when your world is crumbling or the world around you is crumbling, when darkness is closing in, Jesus says, stand up and lift up your head. Your redemption is coming near. Your redemption is approaching. Jesus is saying, let the struggle create a sense of anticipation. 
let the struggle create a sense of expectation. Let the struggle even create a sense of, a sense of hope, a sense of hope that redemption is drawing near. Your redemption is coming, and your redemption is coming in the Son of Man who is coming with great power and glory. Now, the Son of Man is a title for Jesus. So Jesus is saying, even when the world around you is crumbling, especially when the world around you is crumbling, even when darkness is invading your life, especially when darkness is invading your life, lift up your head. Live with anticipation. Live with hope. Because these are signs, these are reminders that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming back. He's coming for a second time. But the second time, He will not come as a baby. He will come in power. He will come with great glory. He will come and bring resolution to an unraveling world. So Jesus' point is, when your world is unraveling or when the world you see around you is unraveling, remember, Jesus is coming to bring resolution to the unraveling world. The unraveling is real, but he's saying, don't also forget that the resolution will be real. There is unraveling, but Jesus is saying, remember that that's a sign there's a resolution to the unraveling that is also coming where Jesus will return to earth and Jesus will ultimately gather up all of his followers and usher us into eternity in God's presence. So in Mark chapter 13, Jesus says this, teaching on the same subject. Jesus says, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Does that sound familiar? Same thing he just said in, in the Luke passage. And he, the Son of Man, Jesus, will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So if you belong to Jesus, he is going to come and get you, whether you're at the ends of the earth or the ends of the heavens, which I guess means if you go and live on Mars. I don't actually know what he means by the ends of the heavens. Jesus is coming back, and Jesus will get you, and Jesus will take you to your forever home. And so the passage for this morning ends this way. Jesus teaches, be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. Be careful, Jesus teaches, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. I love Jesus' honesty here because it can be hard to hear, hey, I know things are tough right now, I know the world is tough right now, it's not all going great, but have hope. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back really soon. He's coming back reasonably soon. He's coming back. Have hope. Lift up your head and have hope. That can be a tough pill to swallow. And Jesus' point in this passage is, well, what are your other options? You and I can live with Christ-centered hope, a hope that lets us stand against the darkness, a hope that lets us make some corner of the world beautiful instead of watching it crumble. We can live with a Christ-centered hope, or we can give in to the discouragement and the despair that comes when your world is crumbling. And Jesus points out that our world, if left unchecked, will weigh down our hearts. 
Left unchecked, this world will weigh down our hearts and we will either try to numb ourselves from the condition of the world, from the condition of our world, or we will be overtaken with a sense of despair. We will give in to the anxieties of life or we will self-medicate and confuse partying and drinking and mind-altering of all sorts with really being alive. So Jesus' words ring true. Be careful, he says. Be careful. Be careful, Lake Forest Davidson. Be careful when it comes to hope. Be careful when it comes to where your hope is placed. Is your hope placed in the world that you can see or in the world that you cannot see? And you may think it's crazy to put your hope into something that you cannot see. There would have been times in my life where I would say, you are crazy if you put your hope in something that you cannot see. And then I realized that's what every kid does every Christmas morning. They don't run down the hall because they think nothing's there. They, they have this deep sense. They know even though they haven't seen it, they hope in what's under that tree. They put their hope in what they haven't yet seen. And that's Christmas. Ah, Christmas. I love Christmas. That's right, I'm supposed to be preaching about Christmas. Not the end of the world. I'm supposed to be preaching about Christmas today. Okay, good. So that might be the point you're, the question you're asking at this point. All right, right, Reverend His Holiness Michael Flake. We're trying that out for a few weeks, see if it sticks. What does any of this have to do with Christmas? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Let me see if I can explain. Before Jesus was born, in other words, before Jesus came to earth the first time, there were people who lived with anticipation, this deep expectation that God was going to do something, that something better was coming, a sense of hope that God was going to do something that would fundamentally change the world. And throughout the Old Testament, which is the part of the Bible that predates the birth of Jesus, throughout the Old Testament, you get glimpses of this, glimpses of this hope. This is Jeremiah 31, 31 from the Old Testament. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So God says in this passage, I'm going to make a new covenant. A covenant is a promise sealed with a sacrifice. So a covenant is God's promise to his people, but a covenant would be sealed with a sacrifice. So God says, I'm going to make a new covenant, a new promise sealed with a sacrifice. But this covenant will be for all people. This covenant will be for all nations, but from the least to the greatest. Interesting that he starts with the least uh, to the greatest, but that, that's for another sermon for another day. Now, if you had first read this passage when it had first been written, you might come up with all kinds of questions, like, how is God going to forgive our wickedness? A and what, what kind of sacrifice would be complex enough that it could seal this new covenant? And maybe most importantly, when is all this going to happen exactly? Well, the people didn't have the answers, but they lived with a hope, 
a hope that God was going to do something, that God was going to intervene, that God was going to do something that fundamentally changed the world. At some point in the future, God would do something new. And then one night, with very little fanfare, a baby was born in Bethlehem. And as he grew, he began to say things like that he was fully God and fully human, that he had come out of eternity past. The people of that time rejected him, but he has become the cornerstone on which the most international movement in human history has been built. In his last night with his disciples before he was executed, they gathered around a table. He poured wine into a cup, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Next time we celebrate communion in this service, it'll be in a couple weeks. We celebrate every week at 8.15. When we do, we say those same words. We say when we get to, we use juice, but some people use wine. This is the blood of the new covenant. It's a reference to the Old Testament, to what God had said. And so Jesus, when he's having this meal with his disciples, he's saying, I'm the sacrifice that's going to seal the new covenant. I'm offering myself as the sacrifice to seal the new covenant so that anybody can come into the open arms of their creator. That that any of us, when we have faith, through faith, we come into the open arms of God and we become God's sons or God's daughters. And God, in fact, vindicated Jesus, sealing this covenant by raising him from the dead. He honored the sacrifice of Jesus by raising him from the dead. When Jesus came the first time, he showed that centuries upon centuries upon centuries upon centuries of people's hopes had not been in vain. Now, God did it differently than everybody thought he would do it. God did it on a different timeline than the people were expecting, but God was still at work, and God made good on his promise. There was reason for hope, and that reason was the arrival of Jesus. And so I guess that's my point this morning in this sermon. There is a reason for hope, the arrival of Jesus. But not just His first coming, His second coming, that He's going to come again. He's going to come in power. He's going to come in glory. That We can live with this deep sense of anticipation, expectation, maybe even excitement, certainly hope that something better is coming. This world is not all that there is. Our problems and our suffering, as real as they are, are not the end of the story. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming back. And he will gather together his followers from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Don't know what he means by that. He will gather his followers, however ragtag and ramshackle our lives are. He will gather us together and take us home. There is still at least one chapter to be written in this story that we find ourselves in. And the title of that chapter is The Return of Jesus. And so my question for us to reflect on is this. How do you respond to Jesus' promise that He is coming again? How do you respond to Jesus' promise that He is coming again? It's not just that the Bible says Jesus is coming again, although that would be enough. Jesus says Jesus is coming again. How do you respond to His promise that He's coming again? Do you respond with doubt, fear, Hope? 
There'd be all kinds of responses to Jesus' promise, but the three most common ones I see are doubt, fear, and hope. Doubt, right? I doubt it. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't think he's coming back. Or maybe you do believe in Jesus. Maybe you love Jesus. Maybe you follow Jesus. But you can't get your head around how this whole second coming thing is really going to work. And so you're like, I don't know if I buy that part. Responding with doubt. Some of us respond with fear. Like, I do believe in Jesus, and I do believe he's coming back, and I'm not really looking forward to it. Because I know me. I know who I am. I know what I've done. It's not going to be good. The thought of meeting God face to face is not exciting for me. It's terrifying for me. It's interesting the early Christians actually had both of those same responses. And so Jesus' disciple Peter had to write them these words of encouragement. 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, in other words, His promise to return. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Some of the early Christians started to look around and say, man, Jesus should have been back by now. He's not back. And that started to fade to, he's not coming back. I knew this was too good to be true. And when you do read the Bible, it is really clear. Jesus says, I'm coming back soon. Peter's point is, what Jesus means by soon and what you and I mean by soon may not even be in the same ballpark. Right? God invented time. God may think about time differently than you or I do. You may have heard that old joke. There's this, it's this old joke about a guy who meets God and... Um, God is telling the guy, you know, to me, a million years are like a second, and a million dollars are like a penny. And so the guy says, well, then God, can I have a penny? And God says, yeah, yeah, just hold on one second. (laughs) It's an oldie but a goodie. You can use it. You can make friends with that joke. And the nice thing about it is it's actually a theologically correct joke. You don't always run into those. The joke is actually getting at what Peter was getting at in 2 Peter. So Peter was saying to those of us who doubt the second coming of Jesus, Peter's trying to remind us, you know, the first coming wasn't that obvious either. The first coming didn't happen on the timeline everybody thought it would happen on either. What if the second coming is going to work the same way? What if, like, all the pieces are there, but they're only going to make sense once Jesus actually comes? All the pieces were there for the first coming, but they only made sense once Jesus showed up and the people had a chance to reflect on it. What if the second coming is going to work the same way? And then to those who are fearful, Peter says the reason Jesus hasn't yet come back is that he is patient with us. Jesus wants everybody to come to repentance. Jesus wants everybody to come to Him. Jesus wants everybody to leave behind our Jesusless lives so that we might live our lives as His disciples. You don't have to be afraid of meeting Jesus face to face. It can be like the reunion of old friends as you look into the deep and compassionate eyes of Jesus and realize your hope was not in vain.
Now, hope does not take away the sufferings of the present world. Hope, hope does not take away the difficulties that you and I are walking through right now. Hope does not change the world so much as hope changes us. And then it changes the way we interact with the world around us. It allows us to stand up more to the darkness that is encroaching. It, it allows us to, to try to take our little corner of the world and, and make or keep it beautiful, even as it seems to be crumbling sometimes. Hope changes us. And so the conclusion of the Bible begins this way. The conclusion of the Bible gives us kind of a vision of what's to come, and it begins this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, the old translations would say, hark, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Hark, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So I guess the thought I just want to leave you with is, what if those words are not merely comforting? What if they are true? What if they are true? What if at some point in the future, soon, by God's timetable soon, God will intervene at the magnitude that he did on that first Christmas and fundamentally change the world such that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old way of doing things has passed away. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God, or a chance to listen to God about whatever it is He's stirring in your heart or in your mind. I don't know where you are this first Sunday in Advent, this beginning of December, but wherever you are, just spend this quiet moment in personal prayer.
Lord, we feel the weight of the world. We, we feel the weight of expectations. We feel the weight of our own shortcomings and failures. We feel the weight of the sea. Simply the weight of the ways that everything that opposes you seems to have the upper hand sometimes. But Lord, I thank you in the midst of feeling the weight of the world, we have reason for hope. We have reason to lift up our heads. We, we have reason to stand up. And that reason is you, Jesus. And so I pray for our congregation in the midst of all that we are walking through life with right now. I pray that we would turn to you for our hope. And I pray that hope would take a deep root in our souls. And I pray that we would be able to engage with this world differently because we are people of hope, people who have found their hope in Jesus Christ. Lord, for those of us who have not yet placed our hope in Christ, I pray that this might be some, that might be our takeaway from this Christmas. What do I really want for Christmas? I want to be a person of deep-rooted hope. And I have found that hope in Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in His name. Amen. Amen.